With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I lived next to this freaking ghetto and there was this dude out there and I, he looks like he knew me. So he pulled over and he rolled up and said his name was Kalo and he handed me this rock cocaine. And I'm thinking, well, I don't, you know, what is this? And he said, you smoke it. And then he gave me a pipe. <laughs> yeah, that lasted about three straight days. This dude got me hooked on crack, so I'd go across the street and buy more from him. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Brad Lee on his first few weeks in L.A. Not long before he was at the mercy of a crack pipe, he got kicked out of his home in Oregon, convinced a friend to quit his job, and drove to California to pursue his dream of becoming a movie star. And while this dream didn't exactly pan out, that same charisma he hoped would end up on the silver screen has helped him become a master salesman. Today, Brad runs his multi-million dollar business, Lightspeed VT, which gives companies world-class virtual training systems with the goal of getting knowledge from those who have it to those who need it. Brad understands the potential of knowledge to improve lives. And a lot of the passion he has for his company comes from his experience growing up with less than everyone around him. My dad was, he worked at the mill and ultimately he pulled green chain, which is basically just sliding big pieces of wood into a bin as they come down the, the conveyor belt of being made. You know, blue collar, hard labor mill work. parents split. Four of us went with my dad. One stayed with my mom. I was the youngest by two years. My sister was two years older. My brother was like three or four years older. My other brother was four or five years older. So there was a gap. I wasn't really allowed to hang out with them. I wasn't really in the same circles they were. So literally, I was kind of just left alone. I was just running around all day and I saw my dad, you know, come home from work tired, watch a little TV and go to bed. That's about it. Didn't have a lot of you know, beaver cleaver parenting. Dad, get out of here, alligators. Well, let's see. Um, they're both amphibious and carnivorous. So didn't have a lot of love. Didn't have a lot of hugs. I didn't feel like he didn't love me, though. I didn't. I didn't have that. Oh, I'm not loved. Situation going on. I just assumed that's life. I had to figure out a lot of things on my own, which I think lends to my ability to survive and thrive now because I can adapt to any situation and I'm very resourceful. With little supervision and only the towering peaks of the Pacific Northwest to watch over him, Brad grew up resourceful and adaptable. His father's blue-collar American masculinity, the gap in age between Brad and his siblings, and the be-home-by-dinner parenting of the 70s meant that Brad was left to his own devices.
In many ways, Brad was alone. This loneliness would only grow as Brad interacted with kids his own age. We lived on the top of this hill around other, I wouldn't call them mansions by any stretch of the imagination, but they were beautiful houses next to our little shitbox on this hill. They all had money except us. So all the neighborhood kids I would just lie to and tell them my dad owned Disneyland and I'd show them Monopoly deeds to you know, prove that we owned all these properties. It was pretty funny looking back. But ultimately that backfired. Everyone knew that I was lying. And so then I was looked at as an outcast. Like nobody wanted me on their team. Nobody wanted to come out and play. The, the parents wouldn't allow their kid to come out when I knocked on the door. Come on, just stay away from my son, okay? Hey. I had to find the kids outside because I was just known as a liar. So mixed poor people on the neighborhood, kind of the bad element, blue collar, you know, classless, that type of whole stereotype. And then I added a liar on top of it by bullshitting people. I felt like we were the scum of the neighborhood. So as soon as I realized that they didn't believe my lies, they just kind of rejected me. I was on the outs like a leper. It was kind of weird. That just taught me at a young age, you know, to be yourself, to be authentic. Too many people are worried about other people's opinions and ultimately they sacrifice what they believe and what they think or they overvalue what somebody else thinks as opposed to them. And that hurts you because if you stand up for what you believe and you're vocal about it, confident about what you believe and stand for, well then the people that believe and stand for the same things are gonna start to come around and the people that don't believe the same things are gonna start to go away. So many people are afraid of the hate that they'll never find the love. You have to, you have to put it out there in order to find it. Brad quickly realized the power of polarization. So many people are terrified of social rejection, and Brad felt that fear. He was caught in a whirlpool of social and economic prejudices, and his attempts to buoy himself out of classism only pulled him further into the depths. Brad learned that he didn't have to fit in everywhere. He didn't have to falsely adopt the characteristics of his classmates. He just had to be himself. he would learn that certain aspects of his personality actually had utility. Yeah, well, in the first grade, schools used to send the kids around selling various things. Well, we had candy bars every year shipped to the school, and you raised money for the school by going out and selling these candy bars. Could we interest you in some chocolate? Did you say chocolate? Yes, sir. With or without nuts. Again, I didn't have a lot of supervision, so when I went home, there was no one to see if they wanted to buy. My brothers and sisters didn't have any money. They weren't buying any candy bars, so I decided to go start knocking on doors. We're selling chocolate. Is your mother home? After about five or six of them, I realized that, man, I, I have to develop some sort of pitch. We need a new approach. We got it. Let's get naked. No, let's save that for when we're selling real estate. Next thing you know, I'm knocking on a door. And when the person would answer the door, I simply said, do you know the phone number to a good roof repairman? And they'd say, what? And I'd say, do you know the phone number to a good roof repairman? Because when you taste one of these, you're going to go through the roof. 
people just started buying boxes at a time. I couldn't keep it in stock. I'd go back to school. They were giving me the candy bars the other kids couldn't sell. And I literally sold more candy bars in the school's history ever, ever. And I realized that humor sells. Brad learned not to lie, but he also needed to lie less. His family situation would improve. It just seemed like one day, you know, my parents had a little newspaper. Then, then we had a, uh, a tavern and a pizza parlor, which I do remember. You know, I remember going in there to, you know, work in the back, eat for free. My dad would bring me in around 11 p.m. at night with all the drunk people and say, come out and play pool. So I'd go out there and my dad would start betting people that, that, that this kid will, will <laughs> kick your ass at, at, at pool. They would make me play with a broomstick. So not only was I kicking their ass at pool, I was doing it with a broomstick while they all had cues. My dad would make more money. He would just give me some at the end, you know, so I would take 50, 60 bucks a night off of a bunch of drunk pool players. I would just play pool. I wasn't hustling. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I was just a kid running around the town, you know, causing trouble. That little shitty house on top of the hill, my dad and his friends ended up building a big, beautiful house around the house, like the entire house's floor plan became our sunken living room. It took a long time, about a year and a half or two, but we lived in the big, beautiful house for a while, and that's when the businesses started. So he obviously was started to do well. And then what crashed it all is my uncle somehow became my dad's partner at the tavern. He drank a fucking particle shit. He drank a particle thing. I don't care. I'm going home. Somebody came in one night, drank too much, and ended up riding their motorcycle home and getting in a crash. So obviously we were sued for serving too much. Normally you have insurance for shit like that and it's not a big deal, but my uncle canceled the insurance to the bar to save a little money. So we got sued and the next thing I know, we moved out of that house and, and, and moved into a little shitty house. And that was that. My dad went back to working at the mill and ever since then just stayed kind of just average. That was when I was about 13 or 14. So, you know, I got a little embarrassed that we were living in a shithole again. Um, but I don't remember making a big deal about it. You know, I just dealt with it. And, uh, you know, I was out playing or out with my friends most of the time. So I just went there to, like, sleep and shower. Brad was hardly home. And when he was, he was left alone. 
he paid little attention to the dramatic events surrounding his father's business. Just when his father's entrepreneurial endeavors allowed him to soar high, he flew too close to the sun, extinguishing any and all traces of entrepreneurship forthwith. In failure, I think his father grew more bitter. You dropped out of high school at 16. Why? Well, my dad wanted me to mow the lawn, and and I had said I would. And he came home one day. He was a little bit drunk, which was a normal occasion. And my dad was either a happy drunk or a pissed off drunk, and you never knew which one it would be. So he came home, but you could tell by the look in his eyes. And I was there with my friend, and he walked up, and he looked at me with those eyes, and he said... I thought I told you to mow the lawn, and I think and I think I said, I, I forgot. And he said, you forgot, huh? And I said, yeah. And then he goes, I think it's time you hit the fucking road. I knew that if I said anything or did anything other than get the hell out of there, I was, I was going to get some punishment. I didn't say a word. I walked upstairs, packed the bag, and literally left at 16 and uh, never went back home. Was that a tough moment or was that like, oh, I want to stay here for these reasons or was it just like, I know it's clear cut, I gotta go. I always wanted to do what I wanted to do. As far back as I can remember, I never listened to advice or people. I just had to go do it my own way. So when he kicked me out of the house, to me, dude, I was pumped. And so then, like, within a week or two, I just decided, you know, why do I need to go to school? I, I quit school. I said, man, I'm done. I was just starting the 11th grade. Probably the first couple weeks into the 11th grade, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Hollywood and be a movie star. When I was younger, I, I was in a few plays, uh, local city plays and then school plays. And again, I had natural ability to turn into a character. I did well at, at the plays, and then I was in a store one time, and a lady walked up and asked me if I wanted to be in a commercial. Well, it turned out to be a Levi commercial. And so, you know, that led me to getting this, this acting bug. You know, I wanted to be famous. You know, I wanted to be on Heartthrob magazine or Teen Beat. You know, all these cool dudes were always, you know, on it. And they just got a lot of attention and admiration. And I didn't get any at home. So I think I, I, I just wanted some attention. I wanted admiration. And the movie star route was the guaranteed way to achieve it. So I started doing plays and taking drama at school and ended up running off to L.A. I talked to my friend who had a Volkswagen Super Beetle into driving down there. I said, man, let's go to let's go to Hollywood, dude. It's gonna be awesome. I'll be a movie star. We'll get all the girls. You know, I basically I basically closed him on on quitting his job, leaving his house, and running away to California. I made it sound almost like, you know, worst case scenario, we can come back, but let's go down there. He he only made it about a week. As I got down there, you know, I was just trying to find some work as a waiter or something where I could make a little money, trying to find a place to live. What did you encounter there? I, I encountered uh, struggle.
I ran into a girl and, and, and talked her into letting me sleep on her couch. And her parents were cool and, sh and they let me sleep on the couch too. So we ended up, you know, making money and, you know, getting a little shitty apartment. Brad secured an apartment with the same skill set he used when slinging candy bars at six years old. The same skill set that convinced his friend to elope with him to Los Angeles. He was resourceful, incredibly social, and intensely persuasive. It seemed he could curate favors at will, and every favor he received kept him from sinking and failing. He trusted people and the world to help him to catch him when he faltered. However, his innocence and trust in the world would be exploited. I lived next to this freaking ghetto and there was this dude out there and I, he looks like he knew me. So he pulled over and he rolled up and said his name was Kayla. West Side Low End Duroc Crips is the gang he was with. And he used to say, you know, BK all day, which I, I guess means kill the bloods. And he handed me this rock cocaine. So I smoked some crack. This dude got me hooked on crack, so I'd go across the street and buy more from him. And now it didn't work the first time. And I think he was expecting me to be hooked already. But the first time I smoked crack, it really didn't do, do much, or at least I didn't get hooked. And then the next time I drove by, he, you know, waved me down again. He said, what's up? How would you like that? I said, ah, it was this night. He said, here, try these. So, of course, you know, being dumb and young, I went upstairs and decided to go ahead and smoke that crack. And for three straight days, dude, I just kept selling and hawking my shit and trading couches and furniture and whatever I could get my hands on that I owned to go get more crack from this dude. I sold everything I owned so I could get my hands on more crack. Did you know that you were addicted? Yeah, dude, I was literally looking for rocks in the carpet that I hoped I dropped. Like I sat in, in my bedroom, which just had a mattress, smoking crack for three days to a point where I started to take a, breathe, a breath in and it felt like an elephant was standing on my chest. It was like painful. I couldn't breathe. It was crazy. I could just take little baby breaths or, or my chest felt like it was caving in. And, and so that scared me a little bit. And so I was just kind of trying to just stay alive by breathing little breaths and it was painful and, it, and I didn't know what had happened, but I know I smoked crack for three days. So at that point in time, dude, I realized, dude, number one, I'm not smoking any more crack. And number two, I need to get the hell out of here. So that is when I went back to Oregon. I called somebody, it was my dad or my aunt or somebody, and they gave me enough money to, to, to buy a bus ticket and get home. And then when I got there, I stayed on my aunt's couch for about a month and then ended up meeting people and moving in with roommates and stuff like that. Brad reached what many people would call a rock bottom. But reaching the point where he couldn't even breathe gave him clarity. He knew that if he wanted to live, he had to leave. Endlessly searching the carpet for crack was not who he was. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and as he admits, he made a mistake. The key here is he admits the mistake. 
Not many people would come on a podcast and admit to doing crack, yet Brad is consistently and unapologetically himself. That lesson he learned at six to be himself still sticks. So leaving LA, he was in high spirits. He would return to Oregon to continue pursuing acting. So again, I did a few Levi's commercials. I was on Knott's Landing. Knott's Landing was like an old show, like Dallas, like a primetime show. Not like a soap opera, but it was like an evening soap opera type show. Did you like see yourself on TV? Like, I, I did that. Yeah, That's I mean, me. You know, I was cast in Animal House as a youngster. Also, Animal House was filmed in Cottage Grove, Oregon, or part of it. And then I got an audition to be in this starring role in a movie, so I nailed the audition and I got the part. And then three days before production, the producer's son got out of a drug rehab, and as a reward, they gave him my part. Well, the writer of the movie, in Don Cato, liked me so much that they decided to write me a, a new part in the movie. So now my character, uh, who I was going to play, became my dad. And so I now played the son of the person I was supposed to play. The movie ended up freaking hitting, you know, trouble and it never really came out and it didn't matter. Had I stayed in that role, it wouldn't have done anything because the movie, you know, came out and didn't go anywhere. His acting career may have had some successes, but it likely wasn't all that he had hoped for. Maneuvering through problems such as nepotism, he knew firsthand how fickle the entertainment industry could be. He had to figure out what the next steps in his life would be. And he turned from a life of intense freedom to one of intense structure. Wait, you went to the Marines? Well, I was uh, dating a girl whose dad didn't really like me and I wanted to be a cop. So I decided to go in the Marines because if you got out of the Marines and applied at the police force, they would take you no matter what. I scored high on the ASVAB, which is the test that they give for entrance. So I scored really high on that. They were giving me special clearances and in boot camp, I was doing extremely well. And then at some point in time, I got a cut on my leg and they put me in what's called sick bay and my platoon had graduated without me. Then I got a letter from my girlfriend that said that she found out I, you know, messed around with her friend. So I cheated on her basically. And she said she was going to cheat on me with one of my friends. And so the next day I woke up and refused to train. And sure enough, they let me out two weeks later. They gave me an R3 separation, which is an administration separation like I wasn't there. So it wasn't honorable and it wasn't dishonorable. They just acted like I never showed up. You know, if I regret anything in life, it's probably quitting the Marines. Why? Well, because, you know, I think that would have done me a lot of good. The discipline and just, you know, having the fortitude to stick with it and the grit, you know, I think it would have shaped my life differently. After being erased from the Marines record books, Brad began to realize that attitude matters, that it's important to do things for the right reasons. Joining the Marines because your girlfriend's dad respects the position probably isn't the right reason. His purely extrinsic motivation evaporated once his girlfriend informed him of her plans to get revenge on him for cheating. 
No longer needing to care about earning her father's respect, Brad dropped out. He did not want to subject himself to the rigors of military training and didn't give second thought to the fruits he could reap had he decided to suck it up and continue. He left the sea to brave the fires of the Oregon coast, a deed he assumed would feel and appear valiant and courageous. Once again, expectation would differ drastically from reality. We'll be right back after this break. Adrian and I were trying to contact some people that could talk to us about voting, but literally, I don't know, how did it turn out, Adrian? <laughs> literally every single office seems like they're closed right now. Also, because it is 5 p.m. Yeah, because we kind of struck out, we're going to try literally <laughs> just typing in random numbers into the phone and just seeing if they voted. Do people still answer their phones? Hello, uh, who, who am I speaking to? Hello? Can help you? Hello, uh, who am I speaking to? You're speaking to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't think... I was just wondering, uh, have you voted? Dang, bro. Hello? Hey, uh, who am I speaking with? Uh, Tia. Tia, have you voted? Um, thank you for What? Uh-huh. Finding founders. Ah, oh, getting people to vote is hard. I wish it was easy as sharing a podcast. <laughs> wait, wait, could that just be our ad? And also, you can share our podcast by tagging Finding Founders Podcast and posting it to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to go ahead and vote on November 3rd. And also, subscribe to Finding Founders and leave us five stars. Forest Service job was a wake-up call. It, it showed me that I do not like hard labor. How did you get that? Get into that job? I don't remember exactly how I got the job. I just remember people saying, get a real job, get a real job, because I didn't really work. So I got the job, and they told me to show up like at 4 a.m. So number one, I didn't like getting up at 4 a.m. But when, when I got to the woods, basically, you're going up to the forest, it was just this smoke-filled, miserable experience. So literally, I'd just walk up the mountainside, which was steep and, you know, rugged, and I would find smoldering stumps and I'd squirt them with this thing they called the piss bag. So I went up there thinking I was going to be this badass firefighter. I even ran around town telling everyone, you know, I'm going to fight fires and, you know, tried to milk it and get all the admiration for that. And I showed up, turned out I'm the piss bag operator. But I walked around for a day or two, maybe a week, I don't remember, but I ended up getting some poison oak on my arm. And so I went in there and I told him I'm not gonna be able to show up for a couple days because I got this patch of poison oak on my arm. So the guy I tell it to rips off his shirt and, and his whole body's covered in poison oak. And he said, dude, that's part of the job, man. Get back out there. I just knew on the spot that I'm not doing this job. This is bullshit. And that's when I knew, that's when I knew I did not like hard labor. Hard labor, okay, jobs, digging ditches where you come home sore, you got blisters, bloody knuckles, like that's hard labor. At the helm of a piss bag, Brad realized that to him, hard labor doesn't necessarily equate to hard work. Hard work should be self-directed, purposeful. And the experience of putting out embers definitely wasn't that. 
In fact, this job extinguished any interest Brad had in a career as a firefighter. Knowing that firefighting wasn't as fulfilling as he expected, Brad turned elsewhere for meaning. At the ripe age of 17, after having been driven out of the Marines in the Oregon Department of Forestry, Brad stumbled into a car dealership and a treasure trove of opportunity. So the next day or two, I open up the newspaper and I see a job offering for a car salesman. Now, I went down there and applied at the car lot and they literally hired me and walked out and told me to pick out a car. On the spot? Yeah. They hired you on the spot? Yeah, of course. Why? I don't know. Maybe I, clo- <laughs> I, I closed them. I don't know. So obviously I took the job. I couldn't believe they, I got a free car out of the deal. I got the Trans Am and I started selling cars. And within one month, I was kicking everybody's ass. Within two months, I was constantly top dog. You know, and, and it was and it was competitive and it was like there was camaraderie and we'd sit around and, and, and like there's almost if you've ever sold cars before, like, you know, the, the, the sales team gets together and tells stories and waits for customers and smokes cigarettes. It's not a hard job at all. Like people are coming to you looking for a car. All you have to do is find one, negotiate and make money and good money. The first month, I think I made like six thousand dollars and I knew, man. Sales is the game. Sales is the answer. I could always go make, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand a month selling cars. And that's really all you needed to survive. And that's all I was trying to do was survive. I'm not sure $15,000 a month is just enough to survive. It seems like a bit more. And a lot of people would say that number is fairly close to luxury. But I think the thing about Brad is he never feels successful. He's always looking to make more, do more, and accomplish more. And he wasn't delusional. He had evidence of a positive, even exponential trajectory. In fifth grade, Brad set a likely permanent record for the most chocolate bars sold at his elementary school. At 17, Brad was selling double the cars that guys twice his age were selling. But what makes him truly great is his ability to be himself. The confidence paired with that and some charm. He doesn't hope that he will be able to close the deal. He knows that he can. And that sets him apart from the rest. There's different positions at a dealership. I did them all. Ultimately, I ended up running sales teams. A lot of a lot of the salespeople would want me to be their boss and want me to be the leader because I would close the deals for people. Sometimes managing includes showing them how to do it, right? So like if you can't train someone how to do it, well then you shouldn't be managing the team. So you were just basically leading by example. Yeah, well I was always the best closer at the dealerships I've worked for and so I'd always end up becoming the boss or the leader. Brad's evolution to the top was now a far cry from being a rich neighborhood's blue-collar outcast kid. Now, he was admired and respected, a leader that knew what he wanted and how to get it. He initially used the fruits of his ambition for self-aggrandizement, continually asking, how can I get more? He would soon realize that maybe satisfaction and compound success eluded him precisely because he was so intensely self-centered. He started to ask himself a slightly better question. How can I help others while still helping myself? Up till about 30 years old, I really just cared about myself. Didn't really 
think about helping others, so to speak. I was helping myself. I was closing your deals, but not for you, dude. I was closing your deals for me. And everything I was doing with customers was for me. I wanted to make more money. I wanted to be living in a nicer house. So everything was about me, 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 me. There was a guy in the back reminded me a lot of my dad. He was just this hard working dude. He wasn't making any money. He was on minimum wage. And you know, I saw his kids come and, and they were all kind of shy with cheap clothes and ratty shoes. And it was clear he didn't have enough money. So at the end of the day, man, I just said, hey, why don't you let me show you how to sell cars? Because I know if you sell cars, you're going to make money and not just sit back there and work hard. Well, within three months of me showing him how to sell cars, he was making five, 10, 15 grand a month, every single month. And then I saw the kids come in with new shoes and they were smiling and they were excited and they were playing and they were jumping and the wife seemed more proud. And I noticed that this guy with a little bit of money changed his whole life, changed his whole demeanor, disposition, everything. It was just like all of a sudden this guy's like now, you know, happy. So once I did that for this guy and I saw the impact that it had on his life, I thought to myself, man, I just want to help other people get that feeling right there. And I had the power to do so. So I decided to quit my job and start a training company. That's when I developed the real deal, packaged it up, and I basically offered to teach people the real deal lease presentation. I was doing okay. I got people to give me like 10,000 bucks to show up for a day and put on this training, but I was living out of a suitcase. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't really like it. So I thought to myself, why can't they train some other way? Like, why do I have to be there in person? And so I went and found people to make these interactive CD-ROMs. And then the interactive CD-ROMs would get lost, scratched, and people wanted more copies and they cost me money. I was buying the, the interactive CD-ROMs from a company and they were charging me $100 a piece and you know it cost them two bucks to print this thing. And one day the, the, the big wig of that company said, what are you doing with these? And I said, I'm selling them. And he said, for how much? And I said, $99.95. And he said, why would you sell them for $99.95 when you pay $100 bucks for them? I said, no, $9,995. And he said, you're, you're charging $10,000 for this and people are buying it? And I said, well, yeah. And he couldn't believe that I, that, that I was selling the same thing over and over for more money. I convinced him that, man, if this thing was online and it worked like this and it had this and that and the other thing, you know, I could sell a million of them. We'd be millionaires overnight and I'd be able to pay you. So I just closed him on, on building the system for me. That's kind of when I found Jason and convinced him that, hey, we need, to, we need to move these online. And so he said, okay. And then it turned out like that's still my partner now. Head back out to travel some more. But then Eric discovered Lightspeed VT. Brad was laying the foundation for a new kind of company. Lightspeed VT is a cloud-based interactive technology that was developed for people just like Eric. A company that would revolutionize an industry. But I think what I find interesting here is that he wasn't trying to be revolutionary. He was just trying to solve problems. First, his focus was on lifestyle. 
How could he create a lifestyle that made money that he actually enjoyed? Thus, he made the switch from in-person training sessions to CD-ROMs. This subtle move towards a location-independent business was also a step towards the future. Then, he had the problem of people not actually finishing the training. So, to solve that, he engaged a brand new technology, the internet. Though we now know this was a huge step, at the time, it didn't seem momentous. So, how did putting everything on the internet actually change things? Well, it didn't. Um, It made it to where I could see who was training and who wasn't, so I didn't have to give people money back. But, you know, for about three or four years, it didn't really change. Nobody thought training online would work. So once I put my training on Lightspeed, it did actually start working. The problem was I couldn't make a bunch of money because I couldn't get a bunch of people doing it. So the technology worked, so that was a good thing. I just couldn't get enough people to do it to pay all the bills. It was really a marketing problem. But at the end of the day, we were ahead of our time. Nobody believed in training on the internet. They wouldn't buy this training system for a thousand a month that would do the job, but they would pay me 10,000 to show up for a day. But that wasn't an option for me. So I just kept pushing light speed. So four or five years later, you know, we couldn't pay the bills and it, it was getting pretty bad. We had probably $30,000 a month to pay in bills and between five and 15,000 a month coming in in revenue. So as you can see, there was a problem. It was hand to mouth for four or five years. And the only way to pay bills was if I got a job. Ultimately, I decided to go get a job running a car dealership for a year so I could fund money and fund the bills from working somewhere else. So literally, I almost quit Lightspeed um, to go back to another job. And I said, I'll give it a year. And I gave it a year. And then I was about to stay in the car business. They were sending me to a school to be a GM, take over a couple of dealerships. And I almost did that. But Jason, who was still working at Lightspeed, so to speak, told me that if I didn't, if I didn't come back to Lightspeed, that everybody was just going to quit. So I worked for a year keeping the thing alive. And Jason said, dude, if you, if you don't come back, then we're just going to shut this thing down. So I just thought to myself, man, I can always Come, come back and run a car dealership. So let me go give this one more ditch effort before I give it up. And so I quit my job and went back to Lightspeed full time. I think what changed is my conviction, timing. You know, the internet had been around a little bit, but mostly my conviction. And the rest is history. Brad was nearly seduced by the predictability and comfort of a steady sales job. But instead, he decided to take the entrepreneurial route to commit himself to a company that thus far had been consistently financially unstable. Why? Because he wanted to achieve greatness. He wanted to break through the ceiling and smash expectations and limits. So he fought for his crumbling company. I got to a point where I couldn't really get past this certain level. So I kind of plateaued and I kept noticing other customers were declining my training because they used other people. I realized that 
if I had these guys on my training system, I would have made that sale. So eventually I just decided I can compete with these guys or I can collaborate with these guys and I can go give them my training system and show them where the customers are. I realized that I'm not going to grow by myself competing and battling for the same market share as these guys. So I decided to let them use my software, put their name on it, their content in it, and show them where some of the customers were so they would just get off the ground and run it right away. And with their big name and marketing dollars, they could make a fortune. So ultimately, I decided to take a back seat with my training expertise and just focus on helping the experts. That feels like a big shift because it's like for so long you were aiming to be the center of attention, aiming to be like the key cog um, in whatever machine that you were building. And now it's like, okay, let me move back out of the spotlight. Yeah, it was tough. I didn't I didn't want to take a back seat. I wanted to be the hero. I wanted to be the superstar. You know, my content was and is, I believe, better than anybody when it comes to sales and closing. He had to do something unexpected take a supporting role. He was accustomed to being the movie star, the leading role, the Superman-like hero who is met with praise and adoration for single-handedly saving Metropolis. But he willingly stepped back, willingly gave up some of the glory, and that shows maturity. Brad moved out at the age of 16. He started his own company. He had an affinity for independence. But until now, his mindset was always controlled by his naive desire for attention. I think he still has some of that desire, but it's much more under control and usually utilized to his advantage. Brad realized that you don't have to close the most deals or sell the most desserts to be successful. Success is knowing your worth and providing value. Glory is irrelevant. Where is light speed now? So Lightspeed's now on the way to nine figures. We have thousands of customers, millions of users, and we just continually try to make the platform better. We just want to make sure that somebody else doesn't come along with a better system. So we try to outdo ourselves and continually make the system better. So what are you most excited for in the future? Of, of Lightspeed. I'm looking most forward to hitting the billion dollar revenue mark or valuation. I don't care because I believe that is when I've achieved something. And until then, I haven't really finished. My mission in life is to get the knowledge from the people who have it to the people who need it. Because I think the reason people fail is because they don't have the right information. People go out of business because they don't know how to find funding. They don't know how to close deals. They don't know how to market. What if they did? I've got the technology to deliver the best information on demand 24-7 with a way that guarantees retention. So at the end of the day, man, my mission is just, hey, let me find the people with the knowledge and get it to the people that need the knowledge. And that's a full-time job. And when I eventually hit the billion-dollar mark, it's just going to allow me to do it because I can step away from the company and, and focus on helping people do the same thing. Brad wants to help people. That seems to be a driving force, a goal. But let's look at another goal he mentioned, a $1 billion valuation. Honestly, goals attached to money kind of scare me. For Brad, they might work. But for me, I worry that I will focus too intensely on outer purpose. 
my life will be streamlined in a way that will try to accomplish that goal, but then a part of myself is imprisoned by that future. I suspend present fulfillment, the wholeness that exists within each one of us right now, and I rip away a part of myself and place it in the future. If your attention on the destination becomes more important to you than the steps you are taking right now, then you are completely missing the journey's inner purpose. Inner purpose has nothing to do with where you are going or what you are doing, but everything to do with the quality of consciousness at this moment. Are you present? Are you grateful for this moment, for what you are doing, for being alive? Really, the only thing that matters is now. And I feel those monetary goals like that, at least for me, in danger of the now. But for Brad, I think it could be different. It seems like money, for him, is a vessel to achieve a larger aspiration. Impact. Brad's dream is to educate people, give them the tools they need to control their future. What advice would you give, you know, your, your 20-year-old self? What advice would you give that person who's embarking on an, an entrepreneurial path? I would tell my 20-year-old self to, number one, shut your mouth, seek counsel, quit trying to learn everything the hard way. There are such things as shortcuts. I would tell myself to stop fearing the judgment of others. I'd also tell myself that it's okay to ask for help. A lot of people won't ask for help, you know, and it makes no sense. I've had people literally come up and ask me for something. I say yes, it changes everything for them. And they told me afterwards, you know, oh, my wife told me I'm crazy for asking you. And, you know, my friends were saying that you would never help me. And it makes you feel kind of like, oh, I want to do it myself. But folks, everything you need in the world other people possess. So ask for help. Most people are afraid to ask for help. Maybe it's embarrassment or fear of rejection, but more likely it's the stigma. Asking for help is almost seen as a weakness. It's a last resort in a society that pedestalizes individuality. People are brainwashed to develop an aversion to vulnerability. And asking for help, that's an act of vulnerability. It's facing the possibility of rejection. But what we have to realize is it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay not to know all the answers. Rome was not built in a day, and companies of impact are not built by a single person. They are built by groups, by movements, by a collection of thoughts, ideas, and actions. And as an entrepreneur, what you have to realize is that people, our networks, those are the keys to success. Let's follow Brad's advice and get out there. Start shaking hands, talking to people, and learning. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing lead is Adrian Tapia with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli Lauren, Matt Fernandez, Demir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock 
with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chafla, Mitchell Lynn, Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Alice Yao, Ankita Numbiar, and Jamil Swayce. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Day, Rick Liu, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Ling Hu, and James Barton. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.